Hey, Double Shifters, it's Catherine. We are still on break after our first season, but don't worry. We are already working hard on bringing you a great season two. In the meantime, if you're missing that double shift feeling in your life, join our membership program. You'll get some great bonus content over the summer. It really helps support the work we are doing. Just go to thedoubleshift.com slash join to sign up. That's thedoubleshift.com slash join. Now on to the main event. Another way to keep some quality content in your ears about working moms is with this awesome episode of Unladylike. If you haven't heard that show yet, definitely check it out. It's a show about gender rules and the people who break them. You know, those unwritten but completely ridiculous expectations of how we should live our lives. You know. The episode we're going to play for you today is an interview from Unladylike with Hillary Frank, where hosts Kristen Conger and Caroline Irvin examine the special misogyny that's reserved for working mothers with some personal stories from Hillary. Hillary is a friend of The Double Shift and the creator of the Longest Shortest Time Parenting Podcast. She gets into some very real biases she's experienced trying to tell stories about motherhood. Boy, can I relate. It's a great conversation, and I think you are really going to dig this. To hear the full episode and many more, just search for Unladylike in your favorite podcast app and subscribe now. Here's the preview. This is the Longest Shortest Time Podcast. I'm Hillary Frank. About a year ago, I moved from Philadelphia. Long before Hillary Frank began producing stories around parenting and pregnancy, she was an audio upstart with a boombox and big dreams. So I got started in radio in 1999. I got my first radio story on This American Life as an unsolicited story, which I submitted to Ira Glass using an answering machine, like a microcassette answering machine, and a shiny red boombox. He invited me to start contributing to the show. I had no experience, and I started becoming a regular contributor, and they taught me how to use the real tools to make radio. Um, And then I started going on like pretty much every big show you can think of on, on public radio at that time. So All Things Considered, Morning Edition, Marketplace, Studio 360. Hillary was thriving, not only at her craft, but also in her professional environment. She worked alongside plenty of men, sure, but it wasn't an old boys club. Yeah, she felt respected, even by listeners. I felt like one of the guys. I really did. I remember going to um, a radio conference where there was a table where women were getting together and talking specifically about how men talked about their voices on the radio. And they invited me to join them, and they wanted me to give an example of a man commenting on my voice, and I did not have any examples. Hear that? She had no complaints. No workplace sexism to speak of. But then... There's always a but then. Hillary got pregnant. And what happened next inspired her recent op-ed in the New York Times we're going to talk to her about today. It's called The Special Misogyny Reserved for Mothers. When I became a mom... It it was a very traumatic experience. Um, I had a really rough childbirth and delivery, and it took me a month and a half to recover physically. Like, I just went through this pretty long period of time where I couldn't be the kind of mom I wanted to be. And shortly after that, after when she was four months old, I moved to a town where I didn't know anybody. There were lots of moms in this town, and I couldn't 
find moms who were willing to talk honestly with me about what they were going through. And so I felt really alone. Um, But I had this at that time, about a decade's career in radio. And I knew that if you stick a microphone under somebody's face, like you have a license to ask them anything and they're more likely to be open with you. And so I thought, well, maybe I can just start interviewing people about this stuff and maybe um, that's where I'll get them to be more real with me. And so it was really about healing myself. It wasn't about telling stories to the public. So those interviews you were collecting became the beginnings of the podcast, The Longest Shortest Time. And you wrote about what happened when you tried to get a wider audience for those stories in your op-ed for The New York Times. We were wondering if you could read a passage. I would be happy to. When I started the show, you couldn't make a living producing a podcast, so I needed to get some episodes on the radio. I sent a sampling to my longtime editor at a big public radio station. He said he was into it, but he couldn't get the higher-ups to bite. It's weird, he said sheepishly. One of them said you sound like a little girl. Even when I was a little girl, I didn't sound like a little girl. I listened to the clips again, trying to figure out what seemed little girlish. The only answer I could come up with, the thing that set this work apart from my previous work, is that I and the other women I was interviewing sounded a little emotional, a little angry, a little raw. These are the qualities that supposedly make radio powerful. Was it being mothers that made us sound weak? There is so much to unpack in in those two graphs alone. So what was that story about? So that that story that I'm referring to, in it, I talk about how I was sure that when I gave birth, I was not going to need any drugs. I was not going to need an epidural. Uh, I I was sure that I was just going to be able to do this, quote unquote, naturally. Um, And so when I heard the statistics about how many moms get epidurals and how many moms get C-sections and like any form of intervention, I was positive I would not be one of them. And I actually felt judgy of the women who got that stuff because I was like, well, they're just not strong enough. They're not strong like me. And then I needed that stuff. I needed drugs. And, um, And in the end, because I did get those things, I felt like a failure. And I blamed myself and I felt like I had I hadn't even really begun becoming a mom, and I was already failing at it. That is not the story that I would in any way, like, associate with little girl-ish conversations. Like, what do you think they were (laughs) kind of hearing between the lines? My best guess is that it was specifically about the fact that I was talking about being a mom and admitting to feeling weak. Did it feel at all like it was the motherhood narrative maybe that we aren't supposed to talk about? And again, too, kind of putting this in the context of of the time in 2010 or around around then that maybe we just weren't hearing stories about like women talking about these kinds of internal struggles. Did it feel like you were kind of hitting the wrong note of like that they would have rather heard some kind of heroic story? 
I think they didn't want to hear about motherhood. Mm. I think at the time, the way that motherhood was being talked about was mostly through like, quote unquote, mommy blogs. And I don't want to like criticize mommy blogs for existing because I, I think like it's cool that you know, there are moms who were writing about their experiences and continue to do that. But I think that a lot of those blogs prettify motherhood and they they make it look really clean. What I was trying to do was more like in-depth storytelling and journalism. And I think that there are probably certain people who would hear that I was doing work about motherhood and just would put media and motherhood together and equate it with kind of the clean version that that was being put on the internet a lot at that time. When it comes to the piece that you're writing about in the op-ed, you pass it along to, you know, a male editor who, you know, sends it to the higher-ups and is like, and he's like, Hillary, I super support you, but these higher-ups aren't biting. Um, they say that it sounds little girl-ish. And we're curious, like, as for those higher-ups, do you think that it was both men and women who were listening to that story and hearing a little girl? And, and asking specifically about, like, were there women also saying no? I mean, so specifically that one, the little girl comment, I know came from a man um, but as I was shopping around um, my stories in the beginning, I definitely got rejections from women. One example is I wanted to get a story on NPR about childbirth injuries and pelvic floor physical therapy. And like the fact is that uh, a lot of women's sex lives are permanently damaged because of childbirth injuries and they don't realize that they can get help. And so I wanted to do a story about that. And there was an editor at NPR who was interested in the story and just thought thought it was a fascinating topic and said she was going to like go to bat for it and then came back and told me like well, you know, we we really just can't have stories about sex on the radio. Anytime it can't be like even on the weekend on like a Sunday afternoon. Um, so yeah, that was that was a woman. And uh, I mean, my question is like, really, you can't you can't <laughs> ever talk about sex on right. The radio? So <laughs> I guess what they were saying is that they they won't talk about like sex for pleasure. Um, on the radio. And that, I think at the time, I hadn't thought of it. And then later went and Googled erectile in uh, on the NPR website and like dozens of stories pop up. Like you don't even have to write erectile dysfunction. <laughs> and, and so like, yeah, all these stories come up about Viagra. So like when Viagra was invented, there's a story um, like 16 years later, there, there's a check-in on Viagra. <laughs> So it seems like it can go on the radio if you're talking about it from the perspective of men. Well, and I'm also thinking about like like public health stories around like birth control and teen pregnancy. But I wonder, too, if it's the added wrinkle of not wanting to hear about moms 
sex lives. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. I mean, like, nobody wants to think about their mom having sex. Um, but people really like to talk about MILFs. <laughs> <laughs> and And I guess the assumption, too, that, like, all of those, you know, whatever penises are benefiting from Viagra uh, could not possibly belong to a parent. Like, right. No, no, no. Somehow of course not. Isolated. <laughs> just an isolated old man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do want to go back and ask why, wh- like what you think it is about motherhood in particular that that brought out these first brushes with like workplace sexism that you experienced from your colleagues. It's hard to get into other people's heads and know what they're thinking about this stuff. But um, I mean, something I was told a lot when I was first making this show and trying to get stories on places was that the subject matter was too small and that the only people who would want to listen to it were moms. And number one, my thought was like, okay, if that's true, that's a pretty big portion of the population. Number two, I don't think that's true because I think that, you know, motherhood and uh, parent-child relationships are portrayed in media all over the place and are consumed by a general audience. I mean, the the funny thing is, like, you were starting this journey in – 2010, and it's sort of parallel to mine and Caroline's podcasting journey, um, where we ironically, at the time, were working on a show called Stuff Mom Never Told You, Uh even though it had nothing to do with moms, (laughs) Um, uh, which was very confusing for a lot of people. Uh, But, you know, it seems like, like when we were first getting started, we also heard similar things that women as a target demographic were too niche. That like, well, you know, we're probably not going to be able to drum up many advertisers, you know, <laughs> uh, which is, yeah, it's laughable. It's laughable. That I don't understand is because I don't know about you, but I'm always told like women are – the biggest target demographic yeah. or one of the biggest, We're the most right? Coveted, they, right? Especially in <laughs> families, it's the mom who does the shopping. Um, I don't understand where that intel was coming from. <laughs> I mean, I wonder if you feel like Longest Shortest Time kind of helped prove the the model in a way. Like suddenly, <laughs> suddenly people see the value in it and um, – I mean, do you feel like you helped lead that charge? I do. Well, Hillary, thank you so much for talking to us. Um, And also, uh, I'm just thrilled that those higher-ups were totally wrong. Um, (laughs) Thanks, you guys. So for Hillary, first came pregnancy, then came the sexism. But we also know that there's so much more special misogyny creeping into workplaces, regardless of whether buns are in any ovens. Yeah, we do, because we've heard all about it from unladylike listeners. Caroline and I asked y'all a little while back to send in your office patriarchy questions and conundrums, and we're bringing in some experts with answers. And battle tactics. Coming up next. (laughs) 
Hey, Double Shifters, thanks for checking out this preview of Unladylike. To hear the full episode, head over to Unladylike's feed. Kristen and Caroline get some great real talk advice from the hosts of the podcast, Battle Tactics for Your Sexist Workplace, which is another great show I love. Happy listening. Happy listening.